Well, after uh, the first 30 minutes of worship, it's been so packed, we could probably just pack it all in and go home, couldn't we? Thank you for not saying amen to that. I appreciate that. Um, wasn't sure where I was going with that comment, but it's been a good morning together, and we are looking forward to um, studying God's Word. And of course, at the end, as you can um, see, we're going to have a time where we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But before we do, we're going to, to conclude our series that we've been in for the last 10 weeks of studying the life of Joseph. You know, the life of Joseph is found in the book of Genesis. And um, Joseph's journey is an incredible journey, one that has many ups and downs. And if you remember, I believe it was the first week, I compared Joseph's life to one of a roller coaster where you just when things are going well, then things seem to fall apart. Then they go well, and it just continues to go back and forth. Well, this morning, we're going to conclude our study. We're going to be in chapter, the end of 49, but mostly in chapter 50 today. But before we jump into that, let me try in the quickest way possible to give you an overview of where we've been in Joseph's life. His story begins in chapter 37. And you remember that Joseph was the favorite son of his father, Jacob. Now, jo uh, Joseph's brothers didn't quite like the fact that not only he was the favorite, but the way that his father displayed his favoritism towards his brother. So he actually, the brothers had this plan that they would rather kill him than to continue on living like this. Now, you'll remember that he had, Joseph had two specific visions that were given to him by God. And both of these visions or these dreams, he, he told his brothers, there's going to be a time that you and actually mom and dad in one of the dreams, you're going to bow down in front of me. Well, they would rather kill Joseph than to bow down. So that's what they set about to do. They find and they, they come up with this plan and they take Joseph out to this pit and they put him in this pit that's so deep he can't get out. There's no food, there's no water in this pit, and, and Scripture tells us that while he is in this pit with nothing to eat or drink, that he actually, his brothers, sit down and they share a meal, and they try to devise a plan of, now what are we going to do with him? Well, instead of killing Joseph, they say, hey, why don't we make some money off of him? Well, let's make a profit off our brother. So they sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt, and we'll get there in just a moment, but we got to say, well, how does Jacob find out about this? Well, they take Joseph's trademark coat that was given to him by his father and they dip it in, in blood, of animal's blood, and they take it back to their father and convince Jacob that Joseph is actually dead. Meanwhile, Joseph ends up in Egypt. And while he's in Egypt, he's in, in one of the most influential um, leaders' home, a guy by the name of Potiphar. He was a slave in Potiphar's household, but Scripture tells us time and time again that God was what? With Joseph. And because God was with Joseph, he continues to rise up through the ranks to where he, he finds favor in Potiphar's eyes, and he becomes second in command in Potiphar's household. He does the right thing. He continues to um, reject the advances from Potiphar's wife, but she throws a false accusation against him. And so when this false accusation comes out, Potiphar's hands are, are somewhat tied behind his back. And, and maybe or maybe not, he doesn't want to throw him into prison, but, but he has to based on what he's heard. He throws Joseph into prison. So here we are again, and Joseph seems as if everything is, is lost. All hope is lost. Now he's been forgotten by his family. He's been forgotten by Potiphar. But we know that what? God was what? Still with Joseph. So while he's in prison, he ends up befriending two of Pharaoh, who had been like the king, two of his attendants, the cupbearer and the baker. 
God gives him the ability to interpret the dreams that both of these men have. For the baker, he ends up being executed. But for the cupbearer, the dream was that he would be restored. And Joseph just says, if you'll just, what? Remember me. That's all I'm asking. Just remember me when you get out of prison. Well, he's released, but he forgets all about Joseph. Years go by and Joseph remains in prison. Genesis chapter 40. And again, it looks as if he is all alone. He's, he's abandoned by his family. He's abandoned by his circumstances. And he's still alone in prison. But what? God was still with Joseph, wasn't he? And it wasn't but a, a few years later that through all these circumstances, through all these events that happened to Joseph, Joseph remained faithful to God. Even when he couldn't see what God's unfolding plan was, he never lost faith that God was working even when he couldn't make sense. Even when he couldn't get those puzzle pieces to fit just right, he trusted that God was still in control. So two years later, he finds himself for the same day plucked out of prison and he's standing before Pharaoh in Pharaoh's court. Pharaoh had had these dreams that he couldn't interpret. The cupbearer says, hey, I remember a couple years ago, there was this guy in prison who interpreted my dreams. Get him out and bring him in here. So he interprets the dream and Pharaoh says, all right, you're going to be second in command over all of, of my kingdom here. Now the, the vision, the interpretation of the vision was that there would be seven years of, of plenty. They would have all the food that they would need, but then it would be followed by seven years of famine. So Joseph develops a system while he's in charge of all the food that, hey, during the time of plenty, we're going to save some. And then when there's a famine, we'll have some that we've saved in these storehouses and we'll be able to share with not only the people of Egypt, but also other people who will come seeking the food. Well, one day while Joseph is second in command there, his brothers walk in. Now you'll remember, his brothers don't recognize him. Lots of years have passed. Now he looks like an Egyptian. He's speaking a different language. And so now his brothers, they come in, they're requesting food. And one of the first things they do is bow down before Joseph, a fulfillment of the dream. And we're left with the question of, okay, how's Joseph going to respond? What's he going to do at this moment? And we spent a few weeks looking at there were two in particular tests that Joseph puts his brothers through. It, he's trying to make sure they have really changed. Have they repented of their past sins? And ultimately, after he gets to the point where he's comfortable that they're different than they were, he reveals himself to his brothers. Remember that dramatic moment where he says, I am what? Joseph. And the brothers aren't comforted by this. No, at this moment, the brothers are justifiably terrified because at this moment, they have to think, now's the time we are finally going to get what we deserve. Now we are going to die. But Joseph, because he could see beyond what the, our, our earthly eyes could see, he says, I want to give you guys a different perspective. I want to give you an eternal perspective of how God sees things. Because what you did, you tried to harm me and you meant it for evil. But what God meant it for was for his good. And God used even your evil, God used it for the salvation, not only of our family, but the salvation of many who are here in Egypt. They have a great feast and Joseph forgives them from their past sins. And then he says, all right, go home, go get dad, go get your family, come back. And Pharaoh offers them some of the best land in Egypt. How was that for a quick summary? All right. You think, what'd you do the last nine weeks? You couldn't get it through that quick, right? That's, that's where we are. All right. Sorry about that. 
So before we jump into the last part of Genesis chapter 49, let me remind you, as I've shared with you time and again, what the overarching theme or the overarching um, message that we want to, to understand as we read this Joseph narrative. And we understand that the story of Joseph, the narrative of Joseph, it's not just about Joseph. No, the story of Joseph is about God keeping his promises. If we reduce this story down to nothing more than a rags to riches, just pull yourself up from your bootstraps, just do your best. If we just said, look at, look at how Joseph honored the Lord, look at Jacob and look how God restored this relationship. Or if we just look at the brothers and say, look, this is how you don't do certain things, then we miss the overarching picture of how God is using even evil that is done in the world and how he redeems it and uses it for his good. Because what? God always keeps his promises. Now, last week we read about the reunion between Jacob and Joseph and how Jacob had been restored with this son who he had been led to have been believed that for 20 years was dead and they were restored and they, they can't stop hugging each other and they're weeping on each other's necks. And, and the key phrase that we looked at last week was that Jacob said, it is enough. It was enough that Jacob had been reunited with the son, that the son had been reunited with the father. So the brothers and the families, and I'm catching you up before where we are. So where we ended last week to where we are now, the brothers have been reunited. The families all come. The grandkids are there. They're given some of the best land in, in Egypt, in Goshen. They're, they've been given this land so they can shepherd. They can have um, all this land to do what they do there. And then towards the end of chapter 49, Jacob is towards the end of his life. And before he dies, he gathers all of the sons together. And he individually goes through each son and he blesses them according to what God has laid on his heart. And after he blesses them, what we're going to read, just a little bit of context here, what we're about to read here in Genesis chapter 40, now we're going to begin in verse um, 29. This occurs 17 years after the reunion. So a lot's happened since where we ended last Sunday with the reunion of Jacob and Joseph. 17 years later, he's just given the blessing. And that's where we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 49. Let's start with verse 29. It says, Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of, of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is the, the field of Mechpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the, with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave it is in were bought, were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Now we'll keep reading in verse 50, in chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and he wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants and the physicians to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. Short aside there. That's only two days shorter than how long the Egyptians actually mourned for Pharaoh when he died. Isn't that interesting? Verse 4, 
And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in my tomb that I am about in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. Here's my question for you this morning. Why in the world did we just have in that story of Joseph two and a half paragraphs that were dedicated to where Jacob wanted to be buried. What's the big deal here? Why would he spend all of this time saying, hey, you make sure that uh, you don't bury me here in Egypt. You make sure that when I'm dead, you take me back and I want to be buried in Canaan. Not only that, on top of that, why does Joseph, he's going to go to all of this trouble to make sure that he obeys his father's request? There's nothing good happening in Canaan, by the way. There's a famine. Why would Joseph have all this energy? What is so important about being buried in Canaan? You have to understand that this wasn't just some dying wish that Jacob is making to his sons. No, this is a signal to all of his sons that he really believes God and what he had said in the past. We've talked about this before. Remember, they were part of a special family going all the way back to Abraham who would have been his grandfather. And God had promised Abraham that I'm going to bless your family and I'm going to make your family a great nation and your nation is going to take place and you're going to grow as you go into where? The promised land. And so they had been promised this and so Jacob is saying, I believe it. I believe this is what's going to happen. And so he tells his sons and he gives them these explicit instructions Make sure you don't bury me in Egypt, but you take me back to Canaan. And when he does that, what he is telling them is, I believe that God is going to do what he promised he was going to do, and I believe it so much, he's going to do it, even if it doesn't happen in my lifetime. Now, friends, that's faith. That's faith to say, I'm about to die. God made this promise. It hadn't happened yet, but I believe it so much so that you make sure that when I am dead, you take my bones and you bury me back because God promised us this land and that is the land where our family and our nation is going to grow and is going to be an example that God has promised us. So when they get back to Canaan and they, they bury their father, it feels like the story's kind of coming in for a landing. And this is the end of of Joseph's life. And now the father is buried where he wants to be. The brothers are reunited. They're all living together. But then something disturbing happens. We see that the brothers still aren't so sure about what's going on. They think something's up here. So let's skip to verse 15 of chapter 50. It says, When Joseph's brother saw that their father was dead, they said it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. 
Interesting response there from the brothers, isn't it? After all that had happened in these 17 years from which they had been reunited, what are they thinking? They can't escape that thought of what they did so many years ago. These brothers are haunted by the sin in their past. See, they had hated Joseph so much when he was a boy, and now they cannot understand why Joseph does not hate them now. They're afraid that, hey, maybe all that we previously experienced, that really wasn't Joseph being real. It was, he was just putting on an act. He didn't really forgive us. He just wanted to pretend that he was forgiving us so that then he'll go back and we'll go get dad and we'll bring him back. And then once dad's it now, now we're going to get what's really coming for us. Now he's going to be his true self. So they go down and they go before Joseph. And what do they do again? They fall down on their face. From my counting of scripture, this is the fourth time this prophecy has come true that now they are bowing down before Joseph and they tell him, we are your servants. Now, I want to take a time out here for a second. Before we get to the point where we say, well, how come they just didn't, they didn't realize that they had been forgiven. Joseph had already forgiven. Let, let's put ourselves in their shoes for a minute. These brothers didn't just talk bad about their brother. They didn't just, you know, say one mean thing or, or put a tweet out that was mean and say, hey, can I take it back? All right. These guys had some, some premeditated ideas and they all agreed upon what they wanted to do. And at one point, what they wanted to do was murder their brother. And now their brother holds their future, their fate in their hands. Not only that, then they sold him to slavery. Is that that's any better? They have no idea who they're selling him to, no idea what's going to happen to Joseph. And now they stand before him. So they fall down on their faces again. And again, we're left with the question of what's Joseph's response going to be? And Scripture tells us that Joseph did what? He wept. What they see from Joseph is his heart is on full display in front of all of them. His brothers come and they're confessing their sin. They're pleading for their life. And Joseph displays his heart of compassion in front of them. Listen to how he responds, verses 19 through 21. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And here's probably the most famous verse in all of Genesis. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. These brothers are haunted by their sin. They're haunted by their past. They're haunted by their mistakes. And when they ask for forgiveness a second time, they're met with what? Compassion. It's the last thing they expected from their brother. These brothers, they can't seem to escape something that they have done in their past. And friends, this is a picture of you and me. Don't miss this. The brother, we are the brothers in the story. There are times in our life in which we come before God and we realize that we come into contact with our own sinfulness. For every single person in this room, if you're a follower of Jesus, there has been a time in your life in which you have come face to face with your own sinfulness. And you have recognized that there have been so many times that you have chosen your own way and ignored what God has called you to do. 
And when we understand how holy and how perfect and how powerful and how loving God is and how sinful and how worthless we are and the fact that he loves us, it is nothing but amazing. And when we understand that this God we serve is all powerful, that he holds our future in his hands, and we understand that we have continually time and time and time again, not only ignored him, but chosen our ways instead of ignoring what he wants us to do, it is a scary place to be. And the only thing that's left for us to do in that moment is to run into the throne room and to throw ourselves in front of our Savior and to plead for mercy. That's what these brothers are doing. We recognize our sinfulness. We recognize how different you are from us and we are pleading for you to forgive us. But when we do that, friends, how does God respond to us? What does God say? He responds like Joseph. He responds with compassion. See, God responds to our repentance with love. So much love that he makes us right before him. He sent his son, Jesus, who was God in the flesh, who didn't deserve any punishment, who didn't deserve death, and yet Jesus, who was God in the flesh, took our punishment, took our death for us, we believe that God, in His compassion, He took all of our sin, all of our wrongdoing, all of the many times in which we have chosen our own way against His, and He died for those mistakes. Paul couldn't say it any clearer when he says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, that stood against us with its legal demands. That's what's against us. The legal demands that we have continued and our debt continues to rise. But listen, here's the best part. This he set aside. How did he set it aside? Not just by racing it or saying, I, I forget about it. No, he nailed it to the cross. The compassion of God forgives us because of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus dies so that we can live. But too many times we stop right there and say, oh, I'm so glad he died to take away my sins. That's just half the story. He didn't just die to take away our sins, but God in his love, he takes the righteousness of Jesus and he places it on us so that when God sees us, he sees us through the lens of Jesus and he makes us right with him. He forgives us. He really does. The question is, do you believe it? How many times are we just like the brothers in the story and we come before God asking him to forgive us for the same thing over and over again, wondering, well, maybe this is the time I'm finally going to get what I deserve. How many times do we not really believe in the goodness and the grace and the compassion that God extends to us through Jesus Christ? I think one of the most difficult things about faith it's believing that God really is as good as he says he is. It's believing that he really does forgive me. He really does love me in spite of all that I am, in spite of all that I do. God says that we will repent of our sins, that he will forgive us, yes, 
but also make us right with him. So let me ask you this. What is it in your heart this morning that as we talk about the forgiveness of God, it wells up in your heart and it comes to the forefront of your mind? Is it a sin? Is it an attitude? Is there a broken relationship in your life? Is there an addiction that you have that you continually come back to and you continually, when you look into your past and you say, well, God, I, I just don't see how your forgiveness applies to this. What is it that when you think about this sin in your life that you think, well, God, maybe, maybe this is when I finally get what I deserve? Because here's the truth. The truth is that God does not respond to your repentance with his wrath. No. He responds to your repentance with love and compassion. So much compassion that he sent his son to die on the cross so that our forgiveness would be complete and final. And then he bestows his son's righteousness on you so that you can be made right with God. But here's the question. Do you believe it? Let me finish out the text this morning, verses 24 through 26. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. What we see here is that Joseph has the exact same belief, the exact same trust that his dad did. That God will one day take us back to this land, and it is the promised land, and our family will become a great nation, and we will be given this land that we have been promised. I can't see with my eyes, but I'm believing it in my heart. Think about it. He had spent more than three-fourths of his life in Egypt and yet he still holds on to the promise that I'm going back to this land that God has promised to us. He really believed that God would keep his promises. And if you continue to read the next book of the Bible, you know that for 400 years, the nation of Israel remains in Egypt. There's a new Pharaoh that comes to power that doesn't remember Joseph and he makes them all slaves. And after 400 years, the leader by the, by the name of Moses leads them out of Egypt and leads them back to the promised land. And one of the details of that story, they take the bones of Joseph with them and bury him in the promised land. Joseph, even in his death, he believed, even if I don't see it in my lifetime, even though my eyes can't see it, I'm trusting with all of my heart that God will keep his promises. Do you have that same belief this morning? That God, even if I don't understand what's going on in my life, even if you don't answer my prayers the way that my heart's cry is, even if you don't come through the way that I want you to, I'm believing that you will keep your promise. It's easy to trust God when things are going well, isn't it? 
It's easy to trust God when God answers our prayer and Lee wakes up. It's a lot harder to trust God that God's word is true, that God is still good, even when it doesn't happen in our lifetime. So what's God's promise to us today? His promise to us today is not that he's going to make us into a great nation. A lot of people want to read that in the Bible. That's not his promise. His promise goes much deeper than that. The promise that he makes us today is that the cross of Jesus is enough to forgive us. The greatest promise that we could ever have, that the sacrifice of Jesus is enough, that if we trust him, that if we confess our sins, if we repent of our sins, that God will forgive us. The question is, do we trust God enough to believe that his words are true? that we truly can be forgiven, that we truly can be made right with God because of the sacrifice of Jesus that we're about to celebrate in just a moment. I hope that you do. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer before we transition to our time of taking the Lord's Supper? And would you bow your heads with me with every eye closed, with every head bowed? I want to ask you, What is it that you feel like that God is still holding against you? What is it that when you think about forgiveness, you act like one of Joseph's brothers thinking, well, he can forgive me for a lot, but I just don't think that, I don't think he can forgive me for this. See, the truth that we see in God's word is that his forgiveness is complete and it's final. The debt has been paid in full. Listen to me. The promise of the cross is that Jesus' sacrifice is enough. You don't have to add anything to it. It's not Jesus' death plus my good works. No, it's the death of Jesus, period. Your salvation, your forgiveness, it's not based on what you do. It's based on who your Savior is. And Heavenly Father, I thank you that right now, that you have overwhelmingly through your word, through our experiences, through our life lived together in fellowship, you have demonstrated your compassion and your love for us. Help us believe that what you have done is enough. Help us to, in your grace, to, that it would overcome any amount of guilt that we may have, any amount of pain or sacrifice that we've had to go through, that we would understand that you are enough. God, you're so good that you can even use evil in our life and you can turn it around in your sovereignty and use it for your good. We praise you for that. And Lord, I pray that today, if there's someone here that continues to wear their sin, continues to wear that burden that they have, Lord, that today they would understand that they can be freed from it. That you died on the cross, not just to make them feel better, but to make them who they were dead, that now they can be alive. That sin is fully removed and they can walk in victory because of the cross of Jesus, because the tomb is empty and because we have faith that our debt has been paid. So we thank you for your love. We thank you for your sacrifice. And we worship you. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.